What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. There's a documentary out now about Dick Gregory, the black stand-up comedian and political activist of the 60s and after. It's called The One and Only Dick Gregory, and it's on Showtime. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of several million listeners. He's also been a film critic for Vogue and before that for the late lamented L.A. Weekly. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Well, in my lectures in American history classes on the civil rights movement, I always quoted one of Dick Gregory's most famous jokes, and it's the joke that opens this documentary. I sat in at a segregated lunch counter for months, and when they finally agreed to serve me, they didn't have what I wanted. You know, it's funny, but it's also a profound statement about the limitations of seeking integration into white society in America. And the time at the time he told it, the early 60s, this was a moment when the nonviolent civil rights movement for integration was being challenged by a more radical black power movement. So Dick Gregory in this one joke captures a lot of what made him important then and what makes him important to us today. I was going to say the funny thing about that joke is that I think it's almost better now than it was because at the time the point was they, they, they didn't have what I wanted. But it's the point about sitting at the counter, whereas years later you realize that what it's about is actually integration didn't offer me what I wanted because I still wanted to be black. I still wanted, you know, I still wanted to have my culture. I still wanted to like the things I like. And at the time, I'm, I'm not sure audiences would have heard that. I, I think black audiences would have, but right. I think the white audiences who loved him, you know, m might not have heard that part of it. He's an interesting figure in lots of ways. The first black crossover comedian to make it which is itself a remarkable, I mean, it was, was remarkable when it happened. I was a kid when it happened. I remember seeing him on TV. Well, the documentary says the beginning of his career 
can be dated precisely to the date, to the hour, the first night he played the Playboy Club in Chicago. Tell us that story. He got invited on because the person who was going to play couldn't make it. And that was Professor Irwin Corey, who, in fact, was a, champ a champion and supporter of Gregory, which is it's interesting. I mean, he wasn't just a nonsense spouter. Anyway, they invited him to play at the Playboy Club to fill in for Irwin Corey. And before it started, they said, oh, there is a problem. You, there's a problem. The entire audience is basically Southern businessmen here for a convention. So you're going to be talking to a, an audience of basically white Southerners. Do you want to leave? And in fact, he said no. And in fact, this was the perfect place for him because it was always Gregory's genius that he could actually make jokes that white people got and, la and laughed at. And at the same time, were pointedly true racial jokes that white people knew were true. And what happened was he was there and he played for three hours. It became one of those legendary things where you put the black guy in front of the pack of wolves. And in, and in fact, he wows them. They loved him. And the word of that appearance got to the then reigning host of late night TV, Jack Parr, who invited Dick Gregory uh, on his show. But Dick Gregory at first refused the invitation. He said the issue was sitting on the couch. What was that about? At that point, they would bring entertainers out and the black entertainers would entertain and then leave. And if you were a white entertainer, you did the, you did your bit, and then you sat next to Jack as an equal. So the whole point is, if you sat on the couch, that meant you were somebody, you know, and it meant you were somebody who was being acknowledged and recognized. You were kind of, you know, given that the, the Tonight Show at that point was was kind of a ritual way of, of like expressing what America thought or what wanted to think. To be on that couch was a kind of embrace. If you weren't on the couch, that meant you were different. You were other, you weren't fully accepted. So Gregory insisted on being on the couch. And in fact, after that, he went from having made, I believe, $1,500 the previous year to being offered $5,000 a night. Such was the power of sitting on that couch. He could have still gone on and his, and his shows would have been more valuable anyway. He refused to do it unless he could sit on the couch like a white person would. Like all documentaries of this type, it features a lot of talking heads. Of course, they tell us Dick Gregory was funny, but they tell us other stuff too. Tell us about the talking heads here and, and what you thought about them. There are the you know, people like Chris Rock, who was pointing out something that was true about Gregory, which was that Gregory had this kind of calm confidence on stage. You know, I mean, Rock even said, com compares himself to that kind of like how he's desperate to entertain you. You want to make sure he holds you. Whereas Gregory was slow, he would pause, he would time his jokes with a cigarette. And that's the kind of thing that basically no black comic had done before. The famous black comics who played the Chitlin Circuit who could never make it, people like Red Fox, often worked blue and they often worked raucous and rowdy. And Gregory was more, I think, you know, in thinking about it, was more a little bit of the cool style of jazz from that period. He's in a suit. You know, he's calm, he's measured, he's intelligent, and he's not trying to woo you overtly. His son talks, various political people talk about, about, about the importance of what he was doing. The talking hits, I think, aren't especially perceptive in general. The newsreel footage shows you often what they're saying about his bravery in going to the South. 
I think it's probably a difficult thing to get good interviews about Gregory. Um, but then I think the filmmaker you know, missed some chances about talking about what made Gregory different and, and his comic style, how it worked so well with white audiences. Um, I think there could have been more of that. I mean, so, so in general, I don't think it's a fantastic documentary. Its shape is not particularly nice. Would you agree with me on that, John? I would agree with you that there's uh, there's a lot that this documentary did not do and could have done a lot better. And one of the things is I think they have too many talking heads telling us that Dick Gregory was funny and they not enough footage of Dick Gregory, who was on TV all the time. So there must be f a lot of footage. Of oh, him. no, there's a lot of footage. You know, no, it, 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 it was that weird documentary style of somehow wanting an authority to tell you something that is clear to your <laughs> clear to your sight every time he's on being funny he's funny you need not a single person to tell you he's funny <laughs> then they're saying he's brave yet if you simply and anybody who's going to see this documentary knows the story that you had to be brave to go to mississippi to promote civil rights that, at that point so let's talk about the mississippi uh, part he, he killed on tv he was making five thousand dollars a night in 60, 61, and then in 1962, he went to Mississippi, we are told, because Medgar called him. Yes. This is Medgar Evers, who was the, the fearless head of the NAACP in Mississippi. Mississippi was, I don't think we even need to say, the scariest place, the place where Martin Luther King really did not go. It was SNCC territory, only the bravest, youngest people it's where the it's where the famous murders took place of the civil rights workers, you know. It's it's the place where even the FBI tried to do a little bit, you know. Even when they weren't doing anything, they, they realized it was so bad in Mississippi, you probably had to at least pretend to do something. So he went down and began promoting civil rights, which very quickly he knew was his calling. That somehow being a comedian seemed like child's play to him. I think he was good at it. It could make money. It gave him a platform, so you do it. But I think he never really thought, oh, that his life's work was being a professional comedian. I do think his life's work was being an activist. And the most important of his life's work was the civil rights stuff that he did. You know, he did other stuff later on, which you will talk about, I'm sure. And indeed, he was a, few, a huge figure in, in the civil rights movement in the North as well as in the South. In the book that Mike Davis and I wrote about L.A. in the 60s, he appears half a dozen times in Los Angeles. When, for, for example, when Martin Luther King came to L.A. in 1961 to support the Freedom Riders, Dick Gregory was the MC who introduced Martin Luther King. 40,000 people came to that event. It was at the old sports arena. Uh, and King on stage called it the greatest civil rights rally ever held in the United States because 40,000 people had shown up. That's not in the film. In 63, King came back to L.A. for another rally after the awesome Birmingham campaign. That was King's campaign that was attacked by police with dogs and fire hoses. And this one was even bigger. This one was at the old Wrigley Field uh, the governor showed up, Sammy Davis Jr. was there, Paul Newman, Burt Lancaster, and the MC was Dick Gregory, who had just gotten bailed out of jail in Birmingham to join the rally. That's not in the film either, but that's the kind of figure that he was at this point. Well, no, no, he was. And in fact, there is, I think, something that is in the film that's, that is wonderful. There's a, there's a photograph that they talk about of Gregory MCing and Martin Luther King sitting in the back 
laughing in a way that I've never seen a photo of Martin Luther King laughing. Yes. He looks delighted by what Gregory's saying in, in, in a way that, that's, that's just magnificent. And then Gregory became an anti-war activist later in the 60s and ran for president in 1968 as an anti-war candidate. This story is also missing from the film. 68 was, of course, the year that the Vietnam War was at the center of American politics. The incumbent president, LBJ, uh, was responsible for sending half a million Americans to fight there. And here in California... Anti-war forces launched the Peace and Freedom Party to challenge what everybody assumed would be LBJ's re-election campaign. The Dems, of course, ended up running Hubert Humphrey after LBJ withdrew from his own re-election campaign. Peace and Freedom did not want to be an all-white party. They formed an alliance with the Black Panthers in California. And then they had an open convention to pick their presidential candidate. And Dick Gregory campaigned. But the Panthers insisted that one of their own be the presidential candidate. And they insisted it be Eldridge Cleaver, the black radical author and somewhat crazy uh, militant. Uh, so Eldridge was the nominee instead of Dick Gregory. And Eldridge Cleaver was not old enough to serve as president as required by the Constitution. So he didn't appear on the ballot. He was ruled off the ballot, a complete fiasco. And it could have been Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory was on the ballot as a presidential candidate in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, three other states. That chapter is missing from this documentary. In the mid-70s, as the 60s came to an end, those who had given their lives to the movement had to find other things to do. Tom Hayden became a Democrat and got elected. Huey Newton became a drug dealer and a criminal. Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker. Jesse Jackson split with the SCLC and launched Push to Push Black Capitalism. And what did Dick Gregory do? Well, he be he became an advocate for health food, really, and healthy and healthy eating. It probably didn't seem to be like the correct issue at the time, and then you realize that that you, that you move on fifty years later, and it's and it seems visionary and wise, and in fact, politically and racially sensitive, because of because of course probably the people forced to have the worst diets in America were African Americans, you know, and probably probably indigenous people as well. He saw this as a, an, a health issue and was right about what the food does to the body and how corporations stuff you with the bad stuff. It was actually the food stuff was then linked to ecology. When he moved, he didn't become a drug dealer. Or like many people who were radical, who were into politics, who then went back to just being showbiz figures. Gregory kept with the activism on and on and on. So yes, I agree that he was right about what was wrong with the American's diet and especially black Americans' diet. But by the end of the 80s, he had developed his own health product. A Caribbean-based one, yes. The Bahamian diet, he called it. This was a powdered meal replacement drink. This was a, became a diet fad. It made him millions of dollars briefly, but then it crashed and burned and left him bankrupt and impoverished. So the, the health and wellness chapter of his life, which started out so well, does not end up well. Oh, no, it, it ends quite badly. It is part of the Dick Gregory story was that he was never good at business. And, and, that, and that would include some of the admirable things we're saying, that you, know, that you cancel the club and then you feel bad, so you go back and give a show for free. Yes. You, you, you do all sorts of stuff for free. 
and you spend your money flying back and forth across the country, which then I, I was reading somewhere, man, I don't think this was in the documentary, that sometimes from calling his family and being on the road, he'd have $3,000 phone bills. Nobody was flying him there. Like what he was doing wasn't like the kind of charity where they fly the celebrities in first class. He was paying to do all this stuff himself. And so that sort of crashing and burning when he finally had a big moneymaker seems of a piece with how he wanted to live his life because the money part never really did seem to matter to him. And this part of the documentary is narrated by one of his 10 children and by his widow, wonderful woman named Lil, who we're told was the center of his life, even though he hardly spent any time at home. These people are very eloquent and moving when they talk about him. No, they are. You know, be, you know this isn't one of the, what, you know, what is it called? pathographies, where the children are talking about how awful their, their parents were. Even someone as great as Nina Simone, when you see her daughter talk, you realize that N Nina made her daughter really, really unhappy in her life hellish. And these kids loved their dad. And they thought he was swell. And when he was with them, you know, he, he was with them and he liked them. And he, he was gone all the time, but found a way of making them feel loved and they love him back as does his wife you know you don't get i mean as i say normally when you see this there's always a few with that kind of that kind of edge about how yeah dad sold me out for the cause but, but in fact either there are those children who felt that way and the, and the film didn't want to include them you know or actually he just managed to pull it off the one and only Dick Gregory, an amazing story about an amazing man, not such an amazing documentary, now on Showtime. John Powers, thanks for talking with us. This was great. Always happy to do it. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.